for those of y'all that have been with us uh, from the start, you would have known that if you came any week in the first 12 months of our church, Erica was up here every day leading us uh, uh, every every week, and we're grateful um, just for the way that God had used you. So thank you. Thank you so much for reminding us, reminding us that yeah, that we serve a God that uh, has beaten death. So, Alfreda, a month ago, uh, we lost her, but she's not lost. She's with our Savior, and we can rejoice in that great truth. So, yeah. Let's pray, and we'll dive right into God's Word. So, bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Father, um, we are grateful that you are a God that has conquered death. Father, we're thankful that um, you're not just a God that has done away with death, so that as we think of our lives and what you've done for us, there's something that we look forward to in the distant future, but you are a God that saved us and has provided hope and joy and peace for us right here and right now, Father. I pray that we would rejoice in that truth. I pray that uh, we would take advantage of the fact that, Lord, You haven't just saved us from our sins, but you've given us a new family, Father. I pray that we wouldn't neglect the family that you've placed right in front of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I don't want to start off with a question. The question is this. What kind of a person are you? That's a broad question, so let me clarify what I mean. I really feel like... Uh, there are two types of people. So there's two types of folks. All of us have a leaning one way or another. And that's this. Are you a relationship-driven person or are you a task-centered person? Y'all know this distinction, right? Yeah, relationship-centered people... um, they don't mind being lazy so long as they're not lonely, right? That's, that's, that's me, right? I don't care if we accomplish anything just so long as we have a good time doing nothing, right? So if there's some way that you want to go, something that you want to do, I'm not your guy, but if you want to have a good time um, doing absolutely nothing, I'm your guy, right? So there are those folks that are driven by relationships and people, and they love to be with them, and they love to spend time, and they want to feel connected. But then there's folks that are task-driven, right? And it's, uh, those are the folks that I don't mind if I'm lonely just so long as I'm doing something. There's got to be some hill that I'm trying to climb, some list that I'm trying to check off. I have to accomplish something. What kind of a person are you? Where do you lean? Granted, nobody falls in the extremes, but all of us lean some way, right? The leaning that we have is like the alignment of your car. If you take your hands off of the wheel and you drive, which way do you lean? Your leaning determines your priorities in life. What you feel like is the most important thing. It shapes the the job that you choose, the person that you marry, where you live, your goals, your 
resolutions, it sets your agenda. And not only does it set your agenda, but it shapes the way that you hear somebody else's agenda. Now that's important. Especially for those of us in here that are Christians and we say, hey, at the end of the day, I don't want to shape the uh, agenda for my life. I want to sit back and I want to hear what God says that I should spend my time on. Because the way that you hear what he says that you should spend your time on is going to set the direction for your life and you can't afford to get those things wrong. So what we did at the front end of this year was we said, hey, let's pause on creating the resolutions for our life and let's take some time. Let's set this month out and let's pray and let's ask God what it is that he wants from us. And as you read through the Bible and as Jesus speaks about Christianity There's two things that come up, and based on your bent, you're going to view one, or you may view one as more important than the other. The two things are this, the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment is this. Christ says, love one another. At the end of his life, as he's getting ready to go on the cross, he says, look, everything that's been written in the Bible has been all about this end, that you would love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know your job as a Christian or somebody that walks with the Lord, you have to spend your time loving one another, and that's so true, especially as we take some time and reflect back on the first eight months in the life of this church. Here's what 2015 looked like for us. Dominique Dawson, a church member in here, loses a mentor, somebody that she knew and loved dearly. She dies. April of 2015, my brother dies. May of 2015, Lawrence Brown, Loses a sister to cancer. June of 2015, the first day that we launched this church, we go home and my wife gets a phone call that her grandmother dies. Lo loses her grandmother. And through the course of the next few months of the church, it just took place like clockwork. Everybody was losing somebody. And then January 3rd or 10th of 2016, Alfreda Brown goes to meet our Savior. And do you know what takes place at that time? We as a church really feel it makes sense why Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we love one another because right now, I don't care about accomplishing any goals. Right now, I don't care about tasks. Right now, I just need to stay afloat, and in order to stay afloat, I need the love of the church, that without this group of people that loved us unconditionally, I don't know where I would be. Of course, the priority is that we should love one another. But that's not all that Christ has said. His last words as he leaves this world was he said he gave us what's called the Great Commission. And that's this go out into all the world and make disciples. That if you just do this one and you just take care of the folks that are in the four walls of this church, 
then what's going to take place is that there are people that cannot fit into these four walls that may find themselves on their way to hell. So we go back to last year and we see the murder that took place at the Kroger that was two blocks from here because some guy confronted two guys about stealing his sister's bike and he was shot in broad daylight. Christmas of two years ago, the car chase that took place here in Westview where a grandmother and her son got killed. And those are things that just took place here in these two blocks. You know better than I do about the state of this world that we're in and how uh, it's not enough just for us to be in this room feeling good about the fact that we have folks that love us. There is a world out there that desperately needs to hear from God. So the question is, which one takes priority? It seems like when you give yourself completely to one thing, you can't help it, but you, ne- you tend to neglect the next thing. But lives are at stake with both, so we can't afford to pick and choose. What should we spend our time on? What is God's priority and agenda for us? And we'll turn to God's word. If you would turn with me to John chapter 17. In the same way that we didn't have to invent what God wants us to do, we don't have to go to him to resolve any tension that we see here in this text. John chapter 17. For those of y'all that hadn't been with us, this is a piece of text called the high priestly prayer. And what this is, is Jesus on the night that he's getting ready to go to the cross, after he shares with his disciples about his hopes for them, once he leaves this world, what he does is he takes time and he prays. And this is a unique prayer because if Jesus is in fact God, then this is a portion of scripture where we see God himself praying to God. And so it's this unique prayer because We don't have to wonder how God is going to respond to this prayer. We can sit here and see Jesus is praying all of the right things here. So what we get to do is we get to take some time and just eavesdrop in on to the conversation. And here as we read here in the text, I think Jesus is going to resolve that tension uh, that you and I may feel on the inside and that we face. And so here's my main point. Christian unity is God's great gift to the world. Christian unity is God's great gift to the world. Here's what I want you to see. It's not that we have to choose one or the other. God will use one to bring about the next. That the belief of the world is hinged on the way that the church unifies. Read with me John chapter 17 verse 20. Christ says this. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's two things that takes place here. Jesus lays out God's priority, and then he gives us the purpose of God's priority. So my very first point is this. Unity is God's priority. Unity is God's priority. These aren't just some of Christ's last words to his disciples, but these last words in this prayer are meant to be lasting words. They're meant to be words that stick with us. And look at what he starts off here. As he talks about the unity that he's trying to display, the unity that he wants from us, what he's going to do here is he's going to reshape the way that you and I think of unity. The picture that our world paints of what it means to be together is so underwhelming. And here's what I mean by that. The history of humanity, if you take your hands off of the wheel, it always trends towards conflict, war, division. So much so that, right, the United States of America has never actually been united. The unity that our world tries to to couch as being together because people have been so uh, accustomed to war is unity is just not fighting. So long as we don't fight, then we're at peace. That's a terrible definition of peace. That's not the unity that God's trying to bring. That's so underwhelming. That's not the unity that you want in your marriage. Your friendships are on your job. But then in the same vein, we live in a world that'll couch unity as uniformity, right? So we all can be good just so long as you believe exactly the same things that I believe on everything. And to the point that you disagree with me, you're not tolerated in our culture of tolerance. Neither of those are what he's trying to pray for here. He's praying for this real and this unique sense of unity. Look here first. 20, it starts off and says this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Who's he praying for there? Jesus is praying for you. And when I say you, not in an indirect sense where we look at what God's word says and we say, all right, hey, this was spoken to a group of folks that lived long ago. What's the truth there? And what does that mean for me? No, 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 no. Jesus is actually praying for you. See, 
Sometimes we come to the Bible and we look at the things that Christ prays for and we think the most important thing is what for, what things he prays for. But what I want you to see here is not just what for, but see how far he prays. Jesus is so eager for you to have the things that he wanted that 2,000 years ago he made sure to pray for you. He's not just praying for those that are right in front of him, but this is somebody that has so much faith in God that far from just praying that folks will come to faith, he knows that God will bring people to faith through his word. So when they come to faith, Jesus already wants to have prayers laid out for them. You know what this is like, right? You remember when you got your first job and you were waiting on that first paycheck and you were so sure that check was come that you spent the money before you got it? This is what he's doing. He's so sure. Listen, he's so sure that God's word is actually going to save people. That's what God's word does. God's word doesn't fail. And he's so sure of it that he's not just praying for the people right in front of him, but he's praying for the people that aren't even there yet. I wish that we had some folks in this room that actually believed that that was a legitimate way to pray. I wish that there were some folks here that actually believed that the thing that saves people is not your ingenuity, it's not your creativity, it's not your arguments, it's God's word. And God's word, right, the beauty of it is that it crosses every line of distinction that our world creates. Rich, poor, old, young, white, black, Asian, Syrian, American, refugee, free man, slave, slave owner. The word of God crosses every distinction. It, it, it appeals to all of us, and that's what testifies to its greatness, the fact that God's word can unify so many people. It's why... That concept is why Michael Jackson's music was so popular. Because it doesn't matter who you are. When Rock With You comes on, everybody's the same. This is what God's word does. A testament to its greatness is that it unifies everybody. And Jesus is praying not just for those that are right in front of him, but those that are far out. And this is, this is not the main point of the text, but I just feel like that this has to be said, and that's this. How often are you praying, not just for what God is praying for, but how often are you praying as far out as he is? How often do you take a step back especially for those that, that are a part of this church. And praying, not just that God would create a sense of unity amongst us, but that God would create a 
unity amongst the people that aren't even here yet. That if we really are here in the West End and on the Southwest side, and if we really do want to reach a diverse group, not just racially, but socioeconomically, how often are you stepping back and praying that God would make us one? That there would be a genuine sense of at-homeness and unity for people that may come in here whose clothes aren't as nice as ours. Who may not smell as fresh as we do because they couldn't take a bath the same way that we would. How often are we praying for those that aren't here yet? This is the model that Christ lays out. A unity that would surround God's word. But here. He prays for so much more than that. Not only is he praying for a unity, but he's praying for perfect unity. Look here, uh, verse 21, it says this, that they may all be one, listen, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus isn't praying for a shallow unity, and that's why he's praying. He's not praying for a group of folks that would be in the same room and would say things like, well, I got to love you, but I don't got to like you. He's not praying for something that we could do on our own. He's praying and he's not providing instructions right here because if it is going to come, if that's really going to take place, it has to come by the power of God. And the model that he lays out is, look, look, God, in the same way that you and I are one, in the same way that Jesus felt what God felt, If Jesus and God are having text conversations, they're putting the same emojis at the same time. They're always on the same page. As Jesus looks at the religious prostitution that takes place in his day and age, he's mad just like God's mad. As Jesus sees sinners turn their back on their sin and run towards God, while the rest of the religious Pharisees are judging, Jesus is rejoicing just like God is. As Jesus walks into a town and sees people wandering like sheep without a shepherd, he's crying just like God is. And what he's saying is, Lord, I pray that the the relationship that we have, that you would put that inside of them. There is nothing more... um, telling of unity than realizing you don't share the same emotions or motivations as folks do. You sit around somebody a long enough time and what'll take place is y'all will pick up on each other's mannerisms. You'll start to do the same things that they do. But what's really a sign of oneness is when you share the emotions that somebody does. This is seen clearly in uh, a category of uh, folks that I like to call movie criers. Uh, 
if I go to a movie with somebody that cries there, it's clear you and I aren't on the same page. We're not one. <laughs> You're crying, and in my head I'm trying to say, this isn't even based on a true story. <laughs> These are actors. There probably isn't even really a lion named Mufasa. I, I, and if there was, I don't think he'd beef with his, why are you crying? We don't, we don't have the same heartbeat. We don't share the same emotions. The things that make them cry doesn't make me cry. And what Jesus is saying is, God, he's praying and he's saying, God, I pray that you would unite a group of folks and that they would have what we have. Not just that they would look out at the world and see things the same way that we would, but the biggest testimony of this is when Paul tells Christians to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And what you'll find in a church that God has actually worked this out in is you'll find people who can't have kids rejoicing every time they hear somebody else gets pregnant. You'll have folks that never lost a loved one cry and mourn and bawl their eyes out when somebody that's a part of their church loses somebody that they're close to. Far from erasing our sense of individuality, what this does is it's meant to erase our sense of isolation. That we're in this thing by ourselves. What Jesus is praying for is not just that folks would be brought together and unified, but that there would be this perfect unity the same way that God has it. Let's take this a step further. Far from just being a club where we all come in and at least we're not all by ourselves, Look at what he says about this unity as well in verse 21. It says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also, right here, may be in us. Jesus is not saying, I pray that they would just have somebody that they could lean on. I pray that they would just be a group. No, 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 no. What he's saying is I pray that you would unify them in us around our agenda based on what it is that we want to do, Father. We don't just want them to have a sense of community. I want them to have a sense of community with us. Next week, what's going to take place is the people in the, in the United States, they will unite around football, Super Bowl. So what's going to take place is you'll have all of these folks come in, right? And so if you're throwing a Super Bowl party at your house and somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm glad to be here, grateful for all of what's going on here. I really don't want to watch this. Let's change the station. What you would say is, oh, oh, get out, right? <laughs> what you would say is, well, we could, but as soon as we do that, it wouldn't be a Super Bowl 
party anymore. Part of it being that party is that you actually have to come into what we're already doing. You can't come in and change the agenda. What Christ is saying is he's praying for this unity. It's not just about people not being by themselves. It's about us being brought in into the agenda that he's already set for us. God has a priority. Listen, the reason why the Bible talks about God in relationship with God himself, Trinity, is to remind us that the God that we have is a relational God. So as God calls us, God invites us to a party that's already been going on. So the unity that we have, the unity that he's praying for, is that we would be brought into his agenda. And look here at verse 24. It says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. It's not just that he wants to bring us into something here and now. He wants to invite us to have a destiny that's the same as his son. Unity is great so long as the thing that you unify around is stable. If it's unstable, then what's going to take place is as soon as that falls apart, the unity that you have is lost, right? I grew up and I had a bunch of homeboys that I hung out with and we really did life together and we were tight because we lived so close to one another. And then in the fall of 2002, I went off to college and what took place was I went to a place that they didn't go to. And the relationship is hard as we tried to keep it firm. What we united around was being in the same place, being together. And what took place was that if I'm going to go to some place that they're not going to go, then there will be an end to the unity that we have. What Jesus is saying is, I don't want them just to be one. I want you to ensure that they're going to go to the same place that I am. We're unified as a church because what God has done in Christ is he has ensured that all of us that have put our trust in him have the same destiny at the end of the day, which means this, that you and I have the same hope. Which means this, that when death takes place, you and I mourn, but the thing that links us together is that we're reminded that all the loved ones that we've lost that are in Christ, they're somewhere that we're going to be one day. So there's this common hope that he places inside of us to unite in the midst of these hard times. Jesus is saying that God's priority is unity. So much so that he's praying for it. Praying for it. Helps you and I to remember that what he's trying to bring here is not something that we can do in our own power. We have to pray and ask for him to do that. How often do you actually pray for this? Is this a foregone conclusion for you? Do you assume that God's just going to bring it? Or do you assume that it's not that important? It's so important. 
And God is going to bring it. But the model that Christ gives us is that God doesn't want to bring these things apart from our prayer for those things. What empowers us to pray for, for this? To really step back and to get a group of folks and to say, let's pray that this takes place, is that we know that God will do it. God's priority is unity. And it's not just something that we pray for. It's something that he's called us to pursue, to chase after. It's not like I'm cool with it if it takes place. No, when we pray, that changes our desire for it. And then we've been called to pursue it, which sets the direction for how it is that we begin to make decisions in our lives. If people, if other Christians, if the welfare of Christians never factors into the decisions that you make, as far as where you live, the job that that you're going to choose, how you're going to spend your free time, how you'll spend a Sunday evening when you're tired, if those things never factor into the decisions that you make, then you have a priority that is different than God's. But there are those in here that they do factor into the decisions that you make, and you can be assured that if that's the case, that you and God may very well be on the same page. Unity is God's priority. That's not the end of this text. If I were to ask you, is unity a good or a bad thing? I think most people would say it's good. And I'd say, well, that's wrong. Unity is not a virtue or a vice. Unity is a vehicle, a means to an end. And the most important thing about any vehicle is who's driving, is the so that. Never forget, the Nazis were unified. The Klan was unified. Gangs are unified. Unity in and of itself is not a good thing. It's a vehicle. The most important thing is who's driving. You have to find out what the so that of it is. So God's priority is unity, so much so that Christ prays for it, but he gives us his purpose. And we find it after these two words, so that. So that are some of the most important words in your Bible because they give you purpose, meaning. I'm going to read through this whole text again. Pay attention to the so that, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that... The world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me 
may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And like we saw last week, God's goal is that he wouldn't take the church out of the world, but that the church would remain in the world. Here's the purpose of the unity. Here's why I say Christian unity is God's great gift to the world. That what we see in the text is this, is that the world's belief is tied to the church's unity. The world's belief is tied to the church's unity. God wants to use our unity for a purpose, for a reason. And that main reason is so that people would be convinced that Jesus was actually sent by God. The main reason is that God would use the love that exists here in this church, that God would use the perfect unity of the church in order to combat the ignorance of the world surrounding God's love and what God is like. There's a progression that takes place in this text. In verse 21, he says, God, I pray that they would all be one so that you would, so that they would know that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he says, God, I pray that they would all be one so that the world would know that you sent me And that love was the message. Jesus did not come down to start a war. Jesus did not come down to win arguments. Jesus came down to win hearts. As we think about what God's trying to do on this world, it's not starting a war, but it's wooing people. It's bringing folks back to him. But in order for that to take place... The world has to know that Jesus was sent and his primary way to prove that the message that he carried was actually God's message is by creating a group of people that shouldn't find themselves in the same room and bringing them and making them family. Look at here, verse 25. Pay attention to these words. Jesus doesn't use God's name in prayer the way that we tend to do at times. As a space filler, right? When you don't know what to say, you repeat God's name, Lord God, Lord God, Father. Jesus does not do that. Three times in the first 20 verses, he says, Father. The last five verses, three more times. There are two adjectives that he'll use in front of father. And do you know what they are? Not loving father, not gracious father. Holy father and verse 25, righteous father. So he says this here. Look, this is why God has to send a unified church into the world to convince them of his love. He says this, oh, righteous father. Even though the world does not know you. So he starts off and he says, the problem is that the world is ignorant of God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, when he talks about the love of God, says this. That God's love, God is love, is a truth about God, 
But it's not the complete truth about God so far as the Bible is concerned. God is righteous. And here's what takes place. We live in a world that wants to embrace the fact that God is love, but they want to throw out the fact that God is righteous. And what Jesus is trying to say is this. If you throw out the righteousness of God, you're never going to understand the depths of God's love. If you throw it out, you're never going to quite get love because love is going to be cheap and very convenient. If you were getting ready to propose, getting ready to uh, get engaged, men, and you give your wife a wedding ring, and she's like, this is great. This is such an amazing ring. And she says, where did you get it from? And you said, well, I disregarded the law, and I stole it, but it's a good one. What she would say is, well, what she might say, depending on how good the (laughs) ring is, is... I don't want this. That's that's cheap. You stole, you disregarded laws to give this to me. I don't care about what you supplied me. You didn't sacrifice anything. But if you tell her, no, all right, here, sweetheart, I got you this ring. And she says, I know what kind of job you had. Where did you get this ring? Did you steal it? And you say, no, 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 no. Listen, listen. I sacrificed my own joy, my own comfort, my time, my energy, and I worked two and three jobs. I sold my shoes. I sold my car. I gave up everything that I had just so that I could give you this token of my affection. What's going to take place? As though the price of the ring stayed the same, the thing that changed was that she's brought into your love because of what you sacrificed and you gave up. When it comes to God, the first thing that you see about God in the Bible is not that he is a love of God Although you get there, the very first thing that you see about God in the Bible, the very first act that he does is he drives out darkness and creates light. So that Psalm 7 is true when it says that our righteous God feels indignation every day. That we serve a God that hates righteous or that hates unrighteousness. Not just because it breaks the rules, but it's an attack on his character and it harms the very people that he created. So far from just letting everybody go their own way and run into destruction. Do you know what this great God does? He doesn't upend his standard. He doesn't say, well, it's fine. What's most important to me is people, so I don't care about my law. Nor does he say, well, what's most important is my law, so all of y'all are going to be judged and disregard people. 
God doesn't lean the same way that we would. He's perfectly balanced. And what he says is my holiness is just as important as my love. So what will take place is God saying, I'll keep my law. But I'll also make sure that there is a pathway for a group of people to get back to me so that I can show them my love. So when Christ says here uh, at the end of verse 25, he says, I know you and these know that you have sent me. And he says this, I made known to them your name. What he's saying is he put the fullness of God. He put this great truth about God, God's justice and his love on full display for all of us to see. Jesus, in a sense, was God's highlight reel in time. Tripp and I talked this morning before we came out, and um, I asked him if he saw the game last night. Steph Curry went off in the third quarter, and um, I'm like, man, I sat up there, and I had time, and I watched the whole game. And Tripp said, well, no, 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 I didn't get a chance to see the whole game, but I saw the highlights. I, I got this short clip. I didn't have time to see the whole thing, but there was this short clip that I watched, and it gave me a sense of the whole, and he left just as amazed with Steph as I did, and I sat back and I watched the whole game. When Jesus said, I've made God known, what he's saying is this, to witness the greatness of God would take you an eternity. You would, and nobody has time to watch that whole game. Nobody has time to see all of the great ways that God has done things. Nobody has time to take into account how powerful God was in creating the world and how attentive God was to detail in ensuring not just that you had breath, but the person that spoke to you the words of the gospel had that very same breath to give you the great truth of what God has done. God is holding the stars in place and he's protecting his word from errors so that as generations go on, God's word continues to stay the same. It would take an eternity to think about the great ways that God has sustained people from despair in the midst of death. It would take an eternity to see the greatness of God and what Jesus is saying is, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a 33-year snapshot of God's justice and God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness and his righteous standard. And he's going to take it a step further, not just making God known to us, but going to the cross, dying for our sins, to uphold God's standard so that you and I can come to God and be both fully known and fully loved. That's what Jesus has done on the cross. He came to communicate God's love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then it goes on and says this, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that through him the world might be saved. And what Jesus is saying 
is that he's the only one that comes and gives the balance of God's righteousness and God's love. And to the extent that folks know that he was sent by God, then they'll put their trust in him. But if people are not convinced that the message that he carried actually came from God, what he's saying is they will reject God and they'll lose their only source of hope. The world's belief is tied to the church's unity. What he's tasked us with as a church is in the same way that he showed that love to us, in the same way that this God upheld the standard of God, knew what was wrong with all of us at the deepest level, but it didn't stop him from showing this love to us. What takes place is for those of us that have turned from our sin and started to pursue God, he's put us all in a body. He's put us all in a place and he's left us imperfect so that people will continue to fail and to mess up and to not live up to the standards that you place on them or their own standards. But their imperfection doesn't keep them from our love in the same way that ours didn't keep us from God's love. This is what God's trying to do in the church. That as the church comes together, we are reminded that God is love. It's not the complete truth about God. But for the Christian, for those of us that have been brought into the family of God, that truth that God is love is the most important truth that we know because there's a depth to that love. We know the sacrifice that it entailed. And so as we go to show that same love, we're reminded that in order to get the unity that God wants from us, in order to see that takes place, it's going to take a sacrifice along the same lines of the one that brought us into the family. It's not going to be convenient. But it is going to be worth it. And so as we strive for unity as a church, there's four quick things that I just want to ask for us to do as, as we reflect on the great work that God has done for us. And that's this. The very first one is, is pray. Um, and what's tough is that when you say that, uh, uh, it tends to get treated with all the fervor as the statement, I'm going to pray for you. And so what I say, as, as a church, no, like, we don't want that. We actually want to pray for things because we actually believe that we serve a God that hears our prayers. So this is why we spent this whole month praying. This is why the first Wednesday of each month we gather here and we pray because that is important work and it's some of the most important work that Christians can do. So when I say pray, I don't mean pray in the car on your way home. I mean go home and sit down with your spouse or your roommates and create and say, hey, this is the time and the date that we're going to get on our knees and pray that God would unify as a church and not just us, but everybody else that he'll bring in. Pray. The next way that we can strive for it is to 
is to pursue it. And what I mean by that is we've spoken so much as a church from day one about proximity, living close by. And our aim is we really want to be a a beacon of light here in the West End. And I think because we've talked about proximity so much, uh, what's been lost is that, look, look, it does you no good to live close by if you're not actively pursuing unity with folks that are close by. So, so what I mean more than proximity is this, presence. Wherever you are, be there with somebody else. If you don't live close by, then that's fine, but pursue unity with somebody that's close by. Get together with them and pray. Do something that reminds us that the unity that we have is not just about feeling good together. We've been brought into somebody else's agenda. We pray for it. We pursue it. The third one is this. Preserve it. Here's what I mean by that. Do not be content with seeing conflict take place in the life of the church or among Christians and say, it's none of my business. I don't have to step in. If you really are a part of this family, it is your business. God is going to be the one that brings about the unity of the church, but throughout the Bible, we're constantly charged to maintain that. And so what that means is that if you're a task-oriented person, people cannot be an afterthought in your life. Whatever you have to do to make sure that people in the unity of the church is front and center, do that. If you're a relationship-oriented person, the purpose of the Unity can't be an afterthought. You will never get the type of community that you want if it's just centered around feeling good about yourself and about the folks that you are with. The deepest and truest sense of community comes as a byproduct of being a part of the mission of God. So if you are going to spend time with people, make sure it's headed somewhere, that it's about Something, and the very last one is just this. Persevere in it. Here's what I mean by that. Just because you have friendships and relationships that took place effortlessly doesn't mean that that's how relationships work. Because you have some that just kind of worked out, that's not a legitimate excuse to not work for it. Don't let that make you entitled. It's a gift of God that you have those, but know that the general pattern of relationships means that it takes hard work. So nine years ago, I got married to my wife, and at that time, the guy pronounced that we are now one, And it is going to take us a lifetime to work out that reality. 
But the way that we work that out is we want to persevere in it. And the same is true with us that are a part of this church. That what God has done in Christ is he's brought us all into family and he's made us one. But it's going to take a lifetime to work it out. And it is going to require work. But the good news is that we already know that Jesus has promised that we're all going to make it to the same finish line. We can work because we know that our work doesn't determine our destiny. God's work does. And in light of that, you and I can be free to spend our time striving for unity together as we pray, as we pursue it as we make sure that it's our priority and we preserve it, and lastly, that we persevere in it. No tree bears fruit if it's uprooted every two and three years and goes somewhere else. Roots have to be planted. You have to persevere. And so our prayer is that would take place. If you're trying to find a church to be a part of, like Tripp said at the front end, we would love you to be a part of ours and persevere. Or if you don't like ours, we would love to help you find a good one. We want you to be rooted. And what will take place is that if the church is really unified, then it's the one place on earth where people can look in and say, I see a group of people that are completely honest about who they are, and there's some messed up stuff about that group of people. They shouldn't remain in the same place, but there's something that keeps them together. The beauty of the church is that we get to be God's picture of what it means to be fully known and completely loved. Don't sleep on that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the unity that's been brought about in Christ. We pray that you would give us the strength to to persevere towards that end, Lord. Um, God, I pray that you would uh, remind us that regardless of which way that we lean, um, you are a God that's perfectly balanced, Lord. I pray that we would get our agenda from you. Um, that you would give us the power to do the things that you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.